All right, guys. All right, let's dive right in. So a bit of review. Last week, we were describing the two different um, obligations of learning. One was learning Halakha Psuka, and the other was called Lima Torah. And they're both, they're both different obligations in learning. Uh, halakha Psuka is learning every Halakha. It's straightforward. You know, go through the Mishnah Torah, and then you will have done the Mitzvah Sase of learning the Kol Torah Kula. And you hear that term thrown around, like everyone's like, oh, how can you learn the whole Torah? Well, you just learn the straightforward halacha. It doesn't take so long. You know, read a, read a chapter a day of the Rambam, you'll be done three years. You know, read three chapters a day, you'll be done in a year. It's online in English. Go on to Chabad.com. They have the entire Mishnah Torah translated in English. Slam that thing. What You're all obligated. Doesn't matter, you're women. Do it. So that was... The, to, to do this. Halacha Psuka. Yes. To read the whole Torah? To read but the whole Mishnah Torah. Just yes. Just open the Chumash and like read through that? Nope. That is not Halacha Psuka. It is knowing every single Halacha, every single obligation and prohibition. But isn't that written in the written Torah? Nope. Not directly. Oh. No, but not really at all. Including greeting Rashi or something? Nope. Won't get it with Rashi. Rashi's agenda with the text was to make a, to, to, to resolve the contradictions between Agada and the written text. But he's not getting in halacha. It's a mitzvah sase to learn the entire Torah, which means every halacha, every obligation, every prohibition. So get on chabad.org, start now, because you're all obligated. So that was the first, that was the first obligation in learning Torah, halacha psuka. The, the second was limu Torah. And what we described over there was, well, limu Torah is learning Gemara, and what Gemara is all about is not not actually necessarily learning the, the halacha, because you already did that. You're supposed to learn halacha psukah first. But that instead, you're, you're proving the, val- the, the validity of the text. You're proving, um, in many ways, you're experiencing halacha as being accurate in your learning of Gemara. I shared with you Roshir Gon. Uh, what he defined uh, the Gemara as was just that. It's, it's proving the validity of halacha. And it's exploring the ideas of the law. It's not concrete. It's, it's really almost trying to reenact the fundamental debates that were going on in the yeshivas during the times of the Amorayim. It's, it's, it's kind of a funny thing because we don't relate to reading that way. You know, when we sit down and read a book, we read a textbook, whatever it is, we're, it's like we kind of think of it as absorbing information. But learning the Gemara is very different. It's... it's Exactly this, of reenacting the debates. And so you're only really given, it's almost like very, very long cliff notes where you're given the bare bones uh, uh, that you need to understand there's a difficulty against a statement. But you're actually supposed to expand that, act it out. And that's why we do it with a chavrusa. It's experiential. Um, I shared the idea uh, from Marshall McLuhan. That was, the, that was the Canadian philosopher I was trying to think of. He was, yeah, he, he died in the 80s. Mar, uh, but Marshall McLuhan, his, 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 uh, his quote that the medium is the message. I was sharing the idea that, well, a large part of what is true, it's not so much the information per se, but it's how it's packaged. So you look at you know, the way that, that books uh, package information, there's a loss to the truth because you lose the intonation, you lose the, the, the cadence of actual speech in a book. Well, if you take radio, well, you, you have that cadence, you have the intonation of the message, but you don't see what's going on. You know, a good example of that is you know, the, the presidential debates between Kennedy and Nixon. 
It was just when TV was coming out. And so everybody that saw the debates on TV, they said, hands down, Kennedy won. But everybody that was, was, was listening to it on the radio, it's like, no way, Nixon totally blew Kennedy out of the water. Well, part of that is because Nixon sounded way more put together and intelligent. He is more articulate. And I, in many ways, you know, fine, he was a crook, but he was a smart crook. You know, let's put it that way. Whereas on television, well, a lot of people actually like what Kennedy had to say because Kennedy looked nicer. You know, Nixon kind of looks creepy. And so that's what people were distracted by. That's yeah. Why bringing that up? Because the the medium is what what is the message is the truth. What's the medium? Well, the books, radio, TV. It's not as though truth is truth. It's like what's more important about truth is how it's presented, how it's packaged, how are you giving over the information. That that really is what pragmatically matters. You. That the, 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 the medium is the message. That's the quote. Who says it again? Marshall McLuhan. And the same, same thing with, with TV is that, you know, comparing TV to long-form interviews, say, on YouTube, well, you can listen to a three-hour interview on YouTube, and there's a lot of truth there. It's, you know, unscripted. It's people's real beliefs, real positions, real debates going on. You know, after four hours, people just get worn out, and, like, they, they really do hash it out. But on TV, you could, you know, if you're the most interesting person on the planet with the most interesting, complex idea, you will get six minutes and only six minutes to tell that to everybody. Well, that's not true. That's such an adulteration of whatever your message is. So much has been ripped out of whatever meaningful idea you had, it's fair to say that's not truth. And in TV, they had to do it that way because it's just so expensive to run TV. That's why they had to make these, you know, very, very scripted, very orderly, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, short messages because they just couldn't afford it otherwise. So, like, technology is, like I was saying again, you know, technology, the medium, is the more important part of giving truth. So how does this kind of relate to Gemara? Well, we covered the idea that, well, Gemara, if we start looking at the research and gender differences, what we start to see is that a, a fair, a fair uh, a, a theory of, well, you know, why it might not be advisable. There's debate. You know, some people, you know, argue, according to Halakha, girls should learn Gemara. Some should. You know, I'm not so much getting into that, but more so like the idea behind it is, well, the Gemara is made for men. That looking at personality types, well, women are, generally speaking, like, they're different. They're more compassionate. They're more polite. They're more orderly. You know, they're, they're more threat sensitive. They're more enthusiastic. They're more open. Whereas men, they're more assertive. They're very disagreeable. And they like playing with ideas. And when you kind of line up all the gender differences in the research, you start to see, well, wait a second. The Gemara is actually a text that seems to be specifically written for men. It's combative. It's very disagreeable. Um, it's it's very. Um, it's not obvious what the conclusions are. So someone who's high in threat sensitivity will be put off by like, well, what's the answer? You know, someone who is more orderly will be irritated because the text itself is not written orderly. It's not written that sort of way. Um, you have to have extreme high levels of industriousness to to that. And again, it kind of favors men because you basically. It's more disagreeable. All you're doing is fighting. The stories, you mean the examples they use? The, the, the text. I mean, the, the basic structure of the Gemara is 
statement in halacha, attack against that statement, defense against that statement. And you're doing that ad infinitum. You know, it's like, I mean, it's the same size as the Encyclopedia Britannica. It's very combative. It's not a pleasant read. And once more, it's not just something you read, but you act out. So you're kind of yelling at the other person. It's very emotional. And so, like I said, what bears out in the research is, well, that's not a text. That's, it's not a good medium for women because women are more compassionate. Women are more reasonable that way. Women are more agreeable. Women, uh, yeah. Um, if women are more, um, what word did you just use? Agreeable? Not agreeable. Compassionate? Not compassionate. Combative? Uh, not combative. Uh, uh, you said more, something like Orderly? I said reasonable. Reasonable. Like, that was my summation, so but that's, that's more editorial. More, um, if they're more, not, that's not a character trait. Reasonable is not a character trait. I'm just... Okay, fine. Yeah. But if they're more reasonable, then how come if men are less re- reasonable, I guess, then why do we follow... Something like the Gemara, they just, you know, wrote it and developed it if they're less reasonable. Because I'm, I'm, I'm speaking tongue-in-cheek with the reasonable part. Because there, there is something worth being disagreeable. You know, you, you, you are, are more hard in terms of being willing to sacrifice relationship for facts. That's, okay. a, more male, that's more of a male trait. Okay. You know, I gave that research about, you know, the, the, the game, the, the being electrocuted game where, you know, you had the two people were in on the research and they were playing a game and every time you got the answer wrong, you were given a little shock. And the other two players who were in on the experiment, one is selfish and one is, and one is actually playing nice. Well, every time the nice player gets shocked, both men and women had empathy for him. They said, wow, you know, like the mirror neurons are firing. It's like, man, that sucks. You got shocked. Whereas for the selfish player, here the gender differences just went... Were, were, were quite clear that men felt good that the cheater got shocked. There was pleasure that men got. You deserve to get to get shocked. There's a that's that's very disagreeable. Whereas women still felt empathic. It's like okay, they felt a little less empathic, and it wasn't statistically significant, so it's hard to tell if it was just you know they didn't have a large enough a pool of participants or what. But no, women stayed empathic. Women stayed empathic and agreeable and compassionate, and men men are as disagreeable as sin. Good, you got shocked. That's a very male quality. And so the the point I was making last class was well, again, the medium is the message that it's not as though there's some secret being hidden away. In, in the Talmud somewhere. If you actually read the Mishnah Torah, you will literally cover every single thing that is mentioned in the Talmud. If you read the Ein Yaakov, you'll get all the Agudic stuff as well. Women do that. That's fine. There's no hidden agenda, no hidden information that's being kept away from women. It's really just if a question of it being effective. If you really want to change your behaviors and you really want to live a, a life of transcendence and you want to live a life of morality, well, it actually matters where and how you're trained. And you should, as a person, go to the best sources that are most um, that are that are that are that are most uh, appropriate for who you are as a person. So that was the basic argument I was making last week. And we ended off with the two positions of, we had the question, what did Moshe Rabbeinu know? What did he receive at Har Sinai? And I, pre- I presented there were two different opposing views. One was that he, you know, 
In the 40 days, it's not such a long time to be up there, and he just got the basic definitions of the 613 commandments. He got the, the rules, the 13 midot, the 13 rules of how you interpret the Chumash. And that was it. Have a nice day. Moshe, work it out yourself for the next 40 years in the desert. The other position uh, argued that, no, he got everything. He got every single Dvar Torah that will ever exist in the future. He heard every Darabunin. In fact, he heard this class at, when he was hanging out on Har Sinai. Moshe got everything. And that was, the, that was the debate that was going on. The fundamental difference philosophically between these two views is really questionable how creative is man, uh, how active is man in the halakhic process. I mean, we are created in God's image. We have Tzalem Elohim, and what Tzalem Elohim basically means is we're, we're meaning-creating creatures. That's basically what it means. You know, we're, we're a Medaber, we speak, and that question is, well, how far does our creativity go? For the second position, there's a lot of room for human creativity. You got the, for the first position, rather, I'm sorry. The first position, there's a lot of room for creativity. You got the general rules, have a nice day. The Rambam buys into that, into that first position. The second position is, well, no, there's actually less room creatively for man to be active in creating halachas from the, from the Chumash. And the, the second dispute philosophically between these two views is, well, the clarity of the message that Moshe was given. It's also kind of like, you know, what the, 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 medium, uh, the medium is, is the message, is that, well, when you're talking to God, there's instantaneous clarity. You know, if you're someone like, like Moshe Rabbeinu, all you need is 40 days to get everything that will ever be taught uh, uh, in regards to Torah. So that's another philosophical point. That was last week. This week, I wanted to hit uh, the idea of, well, what is Masorah? And what is the mitzvah's assay of Amuna? This one's important. Because you guys being in seminary, I, I'm willing to bet people throw a lot of names at you. You know, the Rambam says this. The Rebbe Kivager says that. You know, the you know, uh, Rebbe Tarfon in the Gemara says this. I mean, you guys just throw names. And it's really important to know what those names signify. Because every stage in, in the development of halacha, from, from the beginning to end, there's, there's eras. This is one way of thinking about it. There were different halachic eras. And each generation... And they're usually the era, each era, which each era lasts like 200 to 400 years each. Each era is different. It has uh, uh, qualities others lack. And it's really important to know because, well, if, you know, someone says, you know, you know, my, my Rosh Hashiva says this and, well, the Gemara disagrees. It's like, I don't care what your Rosh Hashiva has to say. Your Rosh Hashiva is contradicting Shas itself. And he's wrong, period. Just because you have the name Rabbi in front of your name, means nothing if you are contradicting a Rishon, if you're contradicting the Gemara. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to go through the pecking order. Uh, the, the second reason why this is kind of important is because, well, in understanding the chain of Masora is, according to the Kuzuri, fulfilling the mitzvah sase of Amunah Pshuta. Amunah in Judaism does not mean, I believe. We are not fundamentalist Christians. We do not accept things at face value. We are the only, we're the, we're the only fundamentalist religion that does not read its text literally. We're complicated. So you can't just believe something. 
We're not like most religions. Thank God. And the, the bare bones definition of a muna, the mitzvah's ase, of believing in the Torah, believing in God, the whole shebang, is knowing the, how the chain of the transmission of halacha works. Let's dive in. The first, the first era of halacha, um, again, lasted 200 years, um, were the zugot. These are, you know, if you look, open up your Pirkei Avos, the, the first chapter is listing the different, the pairs, the zugot, of all these different, um, all these different, they were, they were leading the base medrash, these two figures. And the, the way the Rambam describes this era of halacha was a time in which, sure, there were questions that arose, there were halachic problems that came up, but the mastery of halacha was such that any problem that came up was immediately resolved. The basin was able to hear the problem, come to a decision, and there was complete halakhic unity within Judaism. There's no machlokis. Period. And what's kind of cool is, well, the Zugot really oftentimes, they actually were very antagonistic. I mean, there were a couple different pairs of guys that kind of, like, you know, got along nicely, and things didn't work out so well. There was conflict, and it was that, that the, the process of conflict that enabled people to discover truth, and they did. Well, what ended up starting to happen at the very end of this era... So the bait didn't consolve it because they were so close to the... They knew their stuff. They knew their stuff well. There was a clear transmission of Masora. What does that mean? What, well, what it means is that whether version one that Moshe passed on everything... They kept it, or they were really experts. They were, they were, they were, there was no question of their expertise. A version number two of they were able to use the, use the, 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 the mechanisms of the 13 mitos and, and all this stuff and the general kalalim to create halacha, create it properly, to derive from the text of the Chumash and arrive always at a clear halachic decision. But they could do it. That's the point is they could do it. By the end of the Zugot, this is Hillel and Shammai, that was the first machlokis that could not be resolved. And it's a silly one. It was the, the question was, you know, when you give a korban, a part of giving a korban is you have to lay both hands on the head of the animal, and you push it down, and there's a lot of symbolism that goes in there. Well, the question is, can you do that on Yom Tov? Because the animal is muksa. So can you touch it? We do have, there are certain circumstances where Darabunans are um, uh, 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 relaxed at the temple, but it wasn't clear if this is an example of that. This is the first machlokis in Jewish history that could not be resolved. Do you push your animal around on Yom Tov? Wait, so this is, this is, so there's the level, it's under Zugot? These are the, this is Hill and Shammai, they were one of the last Zugot. Mm -hmm. This is when machlokis starts to, to manifest itself. In Judaism. Isn't muksa the only things that aren't useful on Shabbos? No, not, not necessarily, no. It's just like everything? There can be a lot of things. Muksa is a long, long discussion. Like, but no, there's, there's more than just that. It's more than just that. So animals are muksa. So their first unsolvable machlokas? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
And one, one reason why that was going on is because this is when the, the Romans ran into town, and they were causing a lot, of, a lot of problems for the Jewish people. It was a lot of religious oppression. And, I mean, we're also talking about a time where things... I mean, things are being written down. I mean, you know, the, the Jewish people are literate, but th it's not like you can look this sort of stuff up on Wikipedia. You know, like, you have to really invest a lot of time memorizing all this stuff. And so, you know, if you're on the run from the Romans or having to worry about, you know, just economic hardships because of, of, of the shenanigans that they were pulling in Israel, it's like, well, it's, it's hard to actually pay enough attention and dedicate enough time to your studies. So Machlokas starts to build. The next era, which was which was last about two hundred years, were the era of the Tanaim. These are the guys in the Mishnah that are quoted. And what was going on was at this stage, Machlokas is building. You're having large differences of opinion, and each Tana, the word just means teacher. Each Tana is writing his own little notebooks of his what he understands as what halacha is, and everybody has their own style of teaching, and and they're, they're, they have their own students, and and you know it's it's pretty disorganized. There wasn't a central text, and the reason we kind of covered last week is well, it was actually prohibited. It's, it's, it's actually an Isidara to write down the Torah Shabal Peh. But things got so bad that the very fabric of Judaism was threatened. The, 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 the ability to arrive at practical halachic decisions was being threatened, and so Rabbi Yehuda Nasi came along and said, this can't be. Uh, and... And, and offered an argument that, you know, sometimes in order to save the Torah, you have to sacrifice a few halachas. There's a greater good that, that would be served by breaking this prohibition, and they did. And he wrote down the Mishnah. It's actually a machlokas if he created the, 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 not that it was written down, but like had everybody commit it to memory, but for, suffice to say it was written down, you know, for the sake of argument. So they wrote down the oral Torah? They wrote down the Mishnah. So just the Mishnah. And, but he did it with a trick to try and kind of get out of this prohibition that he wrote the Mishnah in such a way that it's not straightforward. It's actually a coded text. And that you have to compare and contrast uh, the Mishnayas, one Mishnah against another, to arrive at what the halacha ought to be. So it's like he wrote it down in code. It's not exactly like he wrote it down. That's kind of how we got around that one. And it wasn't as though he was so clear on what the halacha is. I mean, you guys read Mishnayis. It's not like it reads the halacha is dot, dot, dot. There's a lot of room for, it's, it's vague. There's some room for interpretation. The reason is because of this prohibition. Trying to keep, fine, we'll have a standardized text, but writing it down in such a way that we'll be able to work out what the halacha is from the standardized text, and we'll go on our merry way. The next era, that one lasted for about 300 years, is the Amoraim. What do these guys do? These are the Gemara guys. The big difference between the Amoraim and Tanayim is that the Tanayim actually use the 13 Midos, the 13 hermeneutical rules of interpreting the, the Chumash. They actually are deriving halachas from the text. You read the, the text, eye for an eye, the Tanaim are the ones who say, no, eye for an eye does not mean you pull people's eye out, it means that they have to pay for damages. And they had 
they had a, a, a they had the authority to interpret because they knew how to properly use, like I said, these thirteen midos. So uh, wait, yeah. I'm, I'm just a little confused. Yeah. So the Tanaim teachers Amarain. So the speakers. That's what it literally means. The speakers. Um, that's what the Amarayim are. They don't do that. They do not interpret the Chumash. We stopped doing that. It's been 1,900 years since we have created a halacha from the Chumash. How long? 1,900 years since we have created a new halacha using the Yud Gimel Midos. We don't do that anymore. We do not create halachas. Only the Tanayim did. End of story. Does it, um, for example, when new technology came out, did new halachas need to be created? Nope. It's all about comparing and contrasting. It's like we have the halachas about uh, fire is prohibited on Shabbos. Thomas Edison creates the light bulb. What's that? Is that fire? We, if we were Tanayim, what we would do is, you know, we could in theory as Tanayim use the Yudgimomidos and see, derive from the text, our light bulbs, fire. But we don't do that anymore. We compare and contrast. Okay. That's all we do. So what the Amorayim did is they're not using the Yudgimomidos. What they're doing is they are explaining their, their, their really, um, they're the first perush, honestly. They're speaking clearly. They're not speaking in code. They are, in a straightforward way, describing what is literally the position of the Tanayim. Because like I said, the mission is an encoded text. It's like, well, what do these Tanayim mean? It's kind of weird. And there's not so much to go on when you're reading a Mishnah because it'll literally just read, Rabbi Eliezer says Usr and Rabbi Akiva says Mutur. Well, what the Amorayim do is they explain, well, what's the backstory behind that Mishnah? How do they figure it out? Because they had, they, they, one thing to kind of keep in mind is like, at this stage, we're not talking about such lengthy periods of time and that there was a stable Jewish presence in, in at this time anyway, in Iraq. You know, uh, after, after, you know, from the, from the Zugot onwards, up until really recent, recent history, um, the Jewish people had a yeshiva in the city of Pumpadisa in Iraq. Pumpadisa is modern day Fallujah. Um, and they were there, and they had huge libraries, and they had ancient texts, and they dedicated their entire lives to the memorization of these texts. I mean, it used to be you'd have, like, individual students in the, in the yeshivas. They would literally memorize an entire masechta. So there was the Shabbos guy. There was the Gemara Makos guy. And if you had a problem, you'd be like, hey, Shabbos guy, start reciting Masecha Shabbos. And he would just start reciting the thing. And you had people who memorized the whole thing. I mean, these, were, these guys were dedicating everything they had to knowing the whole Torah. So they had written texts, they had libraries, they had memorized the whole thing. It was all there. So that's what the Amorayim did. And they, and, and they were the ones who wrote the Gemara. And there was two, it was, it's kind of, kind of cool actually, you know, there are certain sections in Shas, like you're reading along and like, there'll be like a little like, you know, a uh, uh, little like, you know, Derek Agav of like, you'll have one Amora talking to another, like, well, how's the Gemara coming these days? You know, where are you at in writing it? You know, like, it's really cool. Like, you kind of like, put that in the Gemara? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I mean, that was, it was, they were writing it. It took it hundreds of years for the Gemara to be written. How did they, like, Gemara's like a lot of stories, no? Nope. It's, it's halachic debates. 
legal debates. Sometimes a little bit, but rare, rare, rare. It's legal debates. Yeah, they have some of those, but that's really not it, man. Like, really not it. It's it's dry legal text, dry legal debates. Okay. That's it. Cool. Yep. So. Not usually. No, pretty it, pretty dry stuff. Two people talking to each other. That's what it's like. Rava says. Abaye says. And it's just it's really just like a that's dialogue. It? Yeah, it's really just dialogue. Yep. My teach yep. my, my school made us we did Gamara's mandatory for girls, and I they always try to make us memorize a ton of email. I never knew what like what yeah. are you saying? I'm yeah. so confused. And then yeah. Just, yeah. It's like my accent. And then their accent dies, and I obligate to pay for their accent. Yeah. Yeah. So Dry legal text. Yeah. It's like, go, go, you know, get a law degree. It's like, it's boring stuff. But it's interesting. I'm not, I'm not trying to put it down, but it's like, it's it's not what people think. It's not, that's why I was saying, like, you know, it's not like anyone's hiding anything. A girl should learn tomorrow. Like, ooh, it's fun stuff. No. It's about oxes goring each other. Yeah. It, it, I mean, just, just do yourself a favor. Like I said, go read the Mishnah Torah. They have it in English and you're all obligated to do it. You can't weasel out of it. Like, just go do that. You'll know it all. Just read it once. And then you, yeah, then you, then you have fulfilled the mitzvah sase of halacha psuka. Yes, go do it. It's on chabad.org. The Mishnah Torah, from beginning to end. Go for it. Three chapters a day. You'll finish it in a year. Three chapters a lot. Well, it's worth it. All right. So that's the Amorayim, and and in the process. In the process of writing the Gemara, there were there were two major redactions of it, where they like they were they were compiling all the information and ordering it, and this you know this very like technical sort of like how do you put each debate where? Because they were basically compiling debates that spanned hundreds of years and making it sound as though like a guy who lived four hundred years in the future is debating someone four hundred years in the past. Like they're really being meticulous. So it went through two redactions. The first was with 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 Abaye and Rava, and then the second, the very end, when the Gemara was sealed, was with Ravina and Ravashi. Sorry, I missed, maybe I missed it. Did, I, did you see why they wrote the Gemara? Why did they... Because it was the same problem that it just wasn't enough to, main, to maintain the, the proper understanding of Halacha. Okay. So they, they ended up just having to write it out. It's like more explanation. More explanation. More explanation. Okay. Is that because society kept getting more complicated? Is that yep. always No, because it was, uh, no, because it really, at, at a certain point, it was like, once the zoo goat started having problems, and once Machlokas started to build, it just got, it just got worse. It just got worse. It was, it, it was like an avalanche. God knew this was going to happen. Hmm? Why didn't he let us write it down, like, by the zoo goat? Well, that was the problem with, you know, tr- as soon as you write something down, that text is... St- that was my Gulliver's Travels examples. Like, language oh, is frozen yeah. in time. Good luck reading Gulliver's Travels. It's in English. It was written 300 years ago. Like, try it out tonight. See, you'll, you'll see what I mean. I the movie. You know? Like, yeah, yeah, I'll watch the movie. So why, no. did, why did they make the Gomorrah so complicated to understand if it was meant to help people? To, to it's not so complicated. Isn't it, like, really hard to learn how to read It's a Gomorrah? lot of information. Yeah, it's a lot of information. Uh, so do you have to, like, learn how to read Gomorrah? Like, it's not like you can just... It's a different it. language. I mean, it's Aramaic. It's a, it's a mix of, of ancient... Different different vernaculars of Aramaic, it's, which, again, is another problem. Like, you, like I mean, one of the... A lot of people kind of get tripped up that, like, you can tell, like, they're spelling the same word differently because that part of the Gemara was written 200 years later, and the actual word itself is spelled differently. So how is this supposed to help people understand it better if it's so much harder? 
It's like hard. That's what I'm saying. Go read the mission tutorial. You'll be fine. But no, it's also not a personality. It's actually a genuinely difficult text. Like you really have to, and this is a part of it, is like you literally have to dedicate your life to it, which is hard to do because like... So why didn't they what? just write the bottom line halacha? They did. That's called the Mishnah Torah. I know before. The, during the they did. The it was sufficient. It's it's because as we're going through this, it's always like a stress of there's a prohibition of writing it down. It has to be a living, breathing, organic process. That's that's a part of serving God. It's not it's not like an abstract idea serving God. It has to it has to have this living feel to it. And so that's why it's so. But then yeah, you do have to write stuff down because you know tough times. People are fallible, and and and, and the more doubt that is put into the system the more you have to prove your solution to the doubt. You know, the, the, the weight of seriously taking on that we're trying to do God's will, as soon as you have the smallest doubt, demands a mountain of effort to prove your solution. That's big. It's not just, eh, okay, I have a solution. You know, you have to have the right solution. So it's a, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. It's very, and that's what I'm saying. Like, you know, it's, if, if, you're, if you're someone who has to have a, a varied life, you know, you want to have a family, you want to, you know, have friends. Like, you really have to give up a lot to really go through this text. Like, you have to really have singular purpose in this. Not many, not many men actually learn the Gemara. They read it. Very few, very, very few actually have mastered the text. Because you really have to sacrifice your life to do it. That's, this is the medrash of, you know, of, of um, uh, uh, Taurus uh, Oalim, you know, the talking about the... The, the that pusik there, the way that they darshan that is because Olim is talking about you know when someone dies in a tent. So the the play on that term Taurus Olim is like you have to kill yourself to learn the Torah. Yeah. It means that you have to sacrifice your whole life. Like that's a lot, you know. Who said that recently? Someone else said that, and I think no, you were like, "Do you mean kill your old self?" I don't know if someone did say that. Was it you? Yeah, I also said I was that. Thinking about that. I also so, have that one. That's I right. I also said that. Yeah, that's another. That's another riff off of that. Off of that medrash is you have to kill yourself and sacrifice your previous beliefs every day. Man, that's a tough order. But it's more than that. It's actually like kill yourself, meaning like you're sacrif- Literally, you're sacrificing your life. You're literally not doing anything else. You're literally giving up another profession because this is your profession. You're literally giving up time with your kids. I'm sorry, daddy's learning first, second, third, and fourth Seder. I'm going to basically see you when I get up in the morning and only for 15 minutes. It's like, honey, I love you. You're the one getting a job because I can't work. That's a sacrifice. This is tough stuff. Most people don't do this. But that's the text. It's a very difficult text. To say it's difficult is an understatement. Wow. And, and but you know, you have but you have this in the secular world also. Is like when people become a lawyer or a doctor, it's like that's it. You're a doctor. Like, sorry, like you might have a wife, but you really don't. Wow. You might have a husband, but you really don't. That's how it is. And, and, and again, it's like you know, this is a broader topic of what do you guys want to do with your life. That's kind of what you need to do if you want a profession. Most people don't have professions. They have jobs. They have things they like to do. It's nine to five and they come home and they actually have a real life. And then there's a few group of people. They actually tend to be men because that's a personality type. It's a biological personality type. The men just get this like weird OCD fixation on stuff and they can do it. But you sacrifice a lot. So it's like it puts into light why we might discourage girls from trying that. It's like... Maybe you're sacrificing too much. It's a cute little hobby. Okay, so that so that's the Amariah. Then the next the next the next halachic era were the guys called the Savariah, 
what they did was this was about 100 years and the Savarayim, the, 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 the reason givers, that's what the term means, they are no longer explaining the position of the Tanayim. They are, what they're doing is they're looking at the state, statements from the Amarayim and they're giving an additional proof why they're right. Wow, so the Tanayim are basically, they're gone. They're gone, that's right. They're so gone. So what are these people called? I'm sorry, I couldn't catch it. Savarayim. The reason givers. Um, Marzutra. I think he was like on the cusp of... And basically what it would be, it was like you'd have a statement from an Amora explaining a Tana. And he would have the interpretation of the Tana. And what... And this is rare. Like there's not so many Savarayim in the in the in Shas. No longer explain... They would, they would give like an additional proof justifying the Amorayim's interpretation of the Tana. That's what they do. Do we like them? Like, they don't come up so often. Most people skip them. <laughs> the next stage is the Gaonim. This the, now where this is starting to get real life because what the Gaonim did, they, they their era lasted for about four hundred years. And like I said, these are the guys hanging out in Pumpadisa. They had access to the libraries of the Savarayim. They had access to the writings of the Amorayim. They had access to everything. To argue with a Gaon as the saying goes, is like arguing with God. That is the, that is the level of authority they have. Like the Vilna Well, the Go means genius. The Vilna he's an Ahron. We're going to get to what those guys are. He is not, he does not have the status of the Gaonim. Mm. He is not like them. Who's the first Gaon? Rav Shira Gaon, Rav Hai Gaon, uh, uh, Rav They have a lot of cool names. Are they alive? Nope, they are very, very dead. So the Gaon lasted 400 years. 400 years. I mean, this is and between the years like, 600 and 1000 Common Era. That's how long they were hanging out. They don't exist. I don't, like, I've never heard of any of these people. Right. Why? Um, because you're not reading the Rambam. Oh. Got him. All right. Oh, so they quote them up. These people translate Got to learn more halakhic books. No, they're, they're, but you're not. They're not quoted so often. But basically what they were doing is, at this stage in Jewish history, all of the scholars were located in this one part of the world, hanging out in Pumpadiza, Fallujah. And the Jewish people had kind of scattered. You had Jews living in Germany and Jews living in, in Italy. Like they were kind of, you know, Morocco. They were all over the place. But they didn't have really sophisticated rabbis. They didn't have yeshivas. And so anytime a question, halakha would come up, they would write a letter and they would wait five years to get the answer. Uh-huh. And sometimes they wouldn't get an answer. Yeah. The, the, uh, man, the, the, my, my, my favorite response from the Gaonim, there was like some guy who wrote him a question on some weird esoteric question in divorce law. Imagine you're waiting three years for a response, right? Yeah. So finally the day comes, you get the letter. And what the Gaon had written was a scathing letter against this guy. It's like, it is obvious to me that you are asking stupid esoteric questions in law and you are not paying attention to the basics that you must master first. You are irresponsible. Oh Do not, yeah, like that, that was the response. Three years, bam, a punch in the face. Yeah. These guys were serious. So, but they were, they were deciding all questions in Jewish law. Um, he, so they were, say, Rav Amram Gon is another famous example. He's the one who, who, your sitter is based on what Rav Amram Gon says to do. I'm intimidated. They seem like the cool kids. They are the they cool kids. Us. They are the cool kids. And so, you know, even, even, even halakhic positions that make no sense 
we will do. Because like I said, it's like arguing with them is like arguing with God. We just assume we don't know, and they had access to, to information we don't. So a good example is hatmana. You guys know what hatmana is? Mm-hmm. Okay, on Shabbos, we all do it. Hatmana is we, we, we make our food on before Shabbos comes in. We want to keep it warm, right? So we whatever, you know, we put it in, in such a way where we were preserving the heat. And it's not a malacha. You're not breaking any laws doing hatmana. It's great. You can do that on Shabbos. So the Ga'onim say that on Yom Kippur, you cannot pre-prepare food and keep it warm. Why? No one knows. There is no straightforward halakhic explanation of why I cannot pre-make food before Yom, Kipp- before Yom Kippur, keep it warm throughout the day. I'll set it up before. I'm not doing any malacha on Yom Kippur. Set it up. And then when Yom Kippur ends, I can immediately eat. Because who wants to starve an extra hour while you're making food? Me. Prohibited. The Gonim said, no, we don't do it. <laughs> do we have a reason why? Nope, no idea. We should not let it cook before Yom Kippur. Like, uh, you're not allowed to pre-cook and keep it warm oh. throughout the day. That's Hatmana, is keeping it warm. Hatmana means to, to encase. That's what the word means. To, to encase and keep it, insulate. To insulate the food to keep it warm. Prohibited. We have no idea why, but the Goyim said it. We don't argue with it. It's like arguing with God. Uh-huh. Okay. Those are the Goyim. So I feel like the reason givers, they just kind of like sucked. <laughs> 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 like you have that? Yeah, yeah. Then you have the Goyim. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, these guys decided that, because we have two Gemaras, right? We have the Gemara Yushalmi, the Gemara Bavli. They decided. We go with the Bavli. They're the ones who organized the sitter. It's like everything we take for granted in, Ju- in, in Judaism, the Goyim had decided on it. Like they're the guys. Okay, now, the next stage, the next era lasted another 400 years, and this was, with, this was the Rishonim. These are, uh, now things are getting interesting now. What ended up happening was, well, you know, the Jewish people, you know, the communities are growing, they're growing in Italy, they're growing in Morocco, like, you know, things are, things are happening. And there was a demand, it, 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 like waiting three years and then getting a, 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 getting a rude response back about your halakha question, like, who wants that? So what ended up happening was, uh, you know, yeshivas developed outside of Pumpadisa, scholars traveled, and now we have Ga'onim in different parts of the world. In this moment in Jewish history is where the massive schism began between the Ashkenazim and the Sephardim. The first Gon who, who traveled outside of Pumpadisa, he ended up in Tunisia, was Rav Husiel. And Rav Chusiel had a student. His name was Rabbeinu Hananel. He had a student, Rabbeinu Nisim. He had a student, the Rif. He had a student, the Rimagash. He had the, stu- the student, Rav Maimon. And he had a son, the Rambam. Oh. That is the Sephardi Masora. Those are your guys. Who's for anyone Sephardi in here? Those are your guys. That's your team. Starting with Rav Chusiel. He's important to know. He's the first gone. He was really the last gone leading into the Rishonim. He's your guy. Well, in Europe, who's, who's, who's we Ashkenazi? We're Ben Gershom. He, he's our guy, and he had a student. The Reed Ben Yakar, and he had a student. Rashi, and he had a student. All of the Balitos was, was like a thousand different rabbis, and then the rush came out of that, and that's the Ashkenazi halacha tradition. What makes the Rishonim unique is true they didn't have access to the entire literature that the Goanim did, but it was a, a full uh, a, a, a communication, a full giving over of their Masora. 
When Rav Chusiel gave his Torah to Rabbeinu Hananel, he gave it all. When Rabbeinu Hananel gave his Torah to Rabbeinu Nisim, he gave it all. It was ish mi pi ish, from man to man. So when you see something from Rishon, you know the entire system of halacha is worked out. There is no contradiction in that man's uh, entire understanding of halacha. That's what makes him a Rishon. That's the power of a Rishon. Now we're at today. The Achronim. Who are these guys? I'm an Achron. We're in the age of the Achronim. This one's lasted 500 years and we're still running strong. The Achronim, we like to read books. We're book people. We no longer have anybody who has worked out the entire Torah in such a way they can claim there is no contradiction in their positions. Wow. Wait, do that? You see the entire Torah? And... That's right. That's what Read the Mishnah Torah. That's the entire Mesorah of the Rambam. That's the entire Torah. Why can't you do that now? Because we don't have access anymore. We don't, we, we, we don't, it was, I lived with this rabbi. I lived with him my entire life. I got everything out of this man. Hoo-ha. I mean, it used to be, they had stories in the Gemara. I mean, like, students were obsessed with the rabbis. They would, they would, they would spy on them. They'd be stalkers. Yes. If you were a rabbi, it was safe to assume all your students were stalking you. And, like, hiding out in your bedroom and, like, in your closet and stuff. Like, weird stories. Are you serious? Dead serious. Because Torah is not a written text, it's a life. It's a living, breathing thing that you act Wait, out. In what, in what era would people do that now? I mean, there were stories in Gemara of people doing that, but even today. I mean, like, there's some fun stories of, you know, students okay, like, running around after Revolba, you know, spying on him. And, you know, yeah, like, that's, that's a thing. That's a thing. Because yeah. the Torah is meant to be lived. It's not an idea. So you have to see it also. It's not just information. No, to sell stock teachers. Yes, yeah, stock teachers. So the Akronim so are different. They, we're, we, you know, the, there's a lot of traveling going on. You know, the, it's not that people, you know, the students are not hanging out the same way that they used to with their teachers and got their full Masora transferred. So and that's just books and books and books and books and books. It's all we got. Everyone's got books. So we're like... Is there more from Akronim to us? Well, here, you know, here's the thing, because we're going to get a little more sophisticated because okay. the... the. So, so the Akronim, mm -hmm. the, they got everything written down and they study it and give what's in the books over? Is well, that what that... I that's what... We're book people. Book. Whatever is written in a book. And it's like... You read... Like, you just like throw a stone in the air and it'll land on a mach locus. It's like everybody says something different. It's because there's just so much information just being like thrown out and processed and and because we ne we lost at the time of the zugot the ability to resolve disputes in halacha we don't have a sanhedrin hagadol anymore i mean their job was to keep the ship afloat standardized halacha that's a good thing we don't want machlokas we don't want you know i have my rabbi it's like that's cute no like we follow god not your rabbi it's a, but we don't have that today that the, the amount of doubt and, and, and the inability to resolve that doubt kept, ex, kept compounding itself exponentially. So, so here's the thing now, because now in today, we, there's, there's three different philosophies of halacha. Because we got a problem now. We have all of these reshonim. We have all these different positions. So it's like, and even worse, is like you, maybe you could get by when people weren't traveling so often and like you lived in your city and, and fair enough. But now that people are traveling everywhere, there's differences of opinion all over the place. So there were three different individuals who stepped up to the plate to try and resolve this problem, to reduce the, the uh, number of opinions, reduce the complexity of halacha 
to kind of act like the Sanhedrin Agudal did. The first was the Beit Yosef, Rav Yosef Karo. He sat down, reading his introduction to, to his commentary on, on the tour, it's really cool that he, he's like, he outlines this problem I'm expressing to you guys. And he's like, okay, well, here's the deal. I could give you my independent halacha positions on everything if you wanted. But I want to standardize halacha. So what I'm going to do is, well, there's this principle that we learned out from the Gemara. Because remember, the Gemara is the final say in halacha. Everything has to be sourced in a Gemara. It's not in a Gemara. It doesn't count. Period. Even, you know, even texts that were written at the time of the Gemara, that were that their midrashim and and you know their Kabbalistic texts and all this stuff, like they're important. But if they contradict Shas, they're out. They do not count. We do not paskin like them. The Gemara is it. So the base Yosef says, fine, okay. Like I want to take a principle from Shas. I want to take a principle from the Gemara, called based in Al Pirov. That I'm going to create a based in says Rav Yosef Karo of three Rishonim, the Rambam, the Rif, and the Rush. They, he felt, created the most exhaustive written texts of Halacha. So you had basically, you know, every uh, uh, position Halacha they had in every area. So that, that's good. And we're voting best two out of three. That's how he rolled. The Ramah, who was living at the same time as, as the Beis Yosef, uh, got beat to the punch. He was writing, he was actually writing a very similar text that, that the, the Beis Yosef was. So you read his introduction, like, it's like kind of tragic, like hearing like, like he spent years writing this text and then the Beis Yosef came out before his, it's like his entire life's work is meaningless now. And it's like, what am I gonna do with my life? And so what he did was, okay, fine. Like his solution was, okay, he scrapped his whole, his whole research project and said, fine, I'm just going to write a little commentary whenever Ashkenazi halacha would differ from the Beis Yosef. That's the Ramah. So you guys open up the Shulchan Aruch, the little in quotation guy. That's the Ramah. He just snuck himself in. Oh, and he had a different principle. He said, you can't tell me that you're making a based in. I disagree with your philosophy, said the Ramah. You can't have a, a basin made of dead people. The rush is dead. The Rambam is dead. The Rif is dead. It's a bad. It's a bad philosophy of halacha. But what I do think is a good one, says the Ramah, is the idea of basrai, meaning in halacha we paskin according to later authorities. So the Ramah said, "Fine." The Rif and the Ram and the Rambam and, and those guys they were actually early early reshonim. The Ramah says, you're breaking this Basrai rule that's also a source in the Gemara, and I'm going to throw all these, all the young Rishonim at you. The Truma Sedeshen, Maharam Baratenberg, the Orzrua, these were the later Rishonim. And based on this principle, says the Ramah, this is how you should decide Halacha. So that's what he did. Well, Yam Shel Shlomo didn't like that. And the Gra didn't like that. They said, look, you can't start cherry-picking principles and Shas. You're right, Ramah, there is no based in. You can't have a based in to dead people. Fair enough. <coughs> but you also can't argue and select these few Rishonim that you like, this Basrai idea. Well, that's not fair either. And in fact, well, you know, this whole idea of striving for truth and, and arriving at Halacha, well, who says we should pay so much attention to any Rishon? They're not the final say in Halacha. 
Shas is the final say in halacha. That's when the halachic process of creation of halacha ended. So what they argued is no. You, what you do is you read the Gemara. And of course you read Rishonim. And you pick based on your understanding of Shas. The Rishon that fits according to your understanding of Shas. You cannot play games. You cannot cheat. You cannot ask other people for help. You have to learn the text yourself. You have to come to your own conclusions yourself. And if you're wrong, because that really was the concern of everybody, is, well, what if we're wrong? There's so many views. We want to do God's will. It's like, well, okay. Yeah, well, what if you're wrong? Maybe the, the, maybe the process of deriving halacha is more important than being wrong, says the Yamshal Shlomo. Maybe it's, it's, it's better to be wrong and actually try to understand Shas. And you're being responsible because you're also keeping within line of, oh, well, of my understanding of this part of Shas is such and such reshown. Like, you are, you are supporting yourself on, on, a, on a larger authority, but maybe the process is more important. So that's his halakhic philosophy. And it's these three halakhic philosophies of the Beis Yosef, the Raman, the Yamshel Shlomo, that exist today. That is the halakhic process. What Long has, and short. What is Yosef Karo's, what was his thing? If the, said maybe the process of finding halakh is more important, if that was the Yamshel Shlomo, then, mm-hmm. then what was Yosef's and Ramaz? So the, the base Yosef argued, he said, listen, there's this principle in the Gemara that you, you decide halakha based on a based in. And the minimum size of a based in is three rabbis. So he picked the, the most um, thorough three Rishonim that wrote the most in halakha. And said, best two out of three. Riff, Ram, Bam, Rush. We're just taking a vote. Okay. And he actually, like, there, there's a large sections of, of his book that he actually doesn't follow his own rules. And it's more of a guideline. Um, it's a, it's a, a bit of a wrinkle in that, uh, in that philosophy of halacha. But that's, that, was his, that was his belief. That was his assertion that he made. Okay. And that's how Svartim roll. That, that is the Sephardi philosophy of halacha. Riff, Rambam, Rush. Two of them were Sephardi and one was Ashkenazi. So that's why Ashkenazim don't make such a, such a big splash in his, in his uh, Shulchan Aruch. Mm, that's nice. Yes. <laughs> Alright, and then what was the Ramah? The Ramah was... It's like you can't, you can't have it based on you know, dead people. You can't be as dead people. So... We have, a, we have another principle in Shas that we pass in Halakha based on later authorities. So we should, we should decide Halakha based on all the last Rishonim. Yeah. Okay, cool. okay, so now these names really should mean something. You know, when you hear the name of Atana, when you hear, oh, is that a Gemara? Anyone says anything to you? Your first question, no matter what. What Gemara is that from? It doesn't matter. It, 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 could, it could sound beautiful. First question, which Gemara is that from? Because it has to be from a Gemara. It's got to be from a Gemara. Got to be. Got to be from a Gemara. Interesting. Or one of the Gaonim, because like I said, you argue with them, you're arguing with God. What but it's got to be Gemara. You and them, it's got to be Gemara. What if I hear something in Parsha and like, I, I make it the right word on it? I learn my own lesson from it. So that's also important. I mean, because like, but this is this gets into one reason. Well, 
the, the, the Chumash is a narrative, and narratives are complex. Like they, it's like the best way to, to encode lots of information is make a story. And so it's fair enough, like you can, you can look at a text, you can look at a narrative and say, you know what, like I find certain ideas compelling, certain moral behaviors compelling, but like it can't contradict halacha, first of all. Like this is one reason why you really should, you're all obligated, Mishnah Torah, tonight, three chapters, Chabad.org. It's like whatever you say can't contradict halacha, first of all. But it is fair to take out lessons from narratives in in, in the Chumash. Just don't hold, just don't contradict halacha. Okay. Yep. Not it. Sure. Yeah. That sure. So cool. I want to know what a golem. <laughs> so and, and number two, you know, so that's that's you know one reason to know this is to protect yourself. Like, don't buy people's jive. That's basically it. Like, people like to be inventive. I have an idea. So, okay, it's cute. You have an idea. You know, and maybe it's a good idea. I'm not don't wanna. I'm not trying to like. Uh, make fun of it, but there's a science to it. It has to be rooted in the Gemara, in an, and, and Rishonim are different than Achronim, and it's it's kind of silly to say, well, Rav, Rav Moshe Feinstein argues with the Rambam. It's like, okay, give me a break. They're different creatures. The Rambam's a Rishon, Rav Moshe's an Achron. I love Rav Moshe. Definitely listen. I mean, he, he doesn't contradict the Rishonim. But it's like, but you have to, you, you can't just like buy into like the name game. That's, that's, the, that's the point I'm making. Number two is, well, all this information I gave over, understanding the mechanics of how halacha was evolved, passed on, the challenges of preserving the Masora, this is the mitzvah sase of Amun Apshuta. We do not just believe. Morality is a science. Divine ethics is a science. And you are obligated to know how that machine works. If you don't know, you are not fulfilling mitzvah sase of Amunah. Period. We didn't get so much time into diving into this idea, but even that, you know, the idea of the mitzvah of, of Amuna is a machlokis. The, the kuzari is what I'm presenting with you, Amuna Pshuta and the Masora, the whole thing. Well, the Rambam, also the Ramchal expresses this idea. Rambam, Rishon, Ramchal, Achron. Express the idea, well, you actually, you can't just, you can't only accept the Masora, you actually have to prove it. You have to prove belief in God. Right, it's a harder one. It's called Chakira. Proving belief in, in and, and you know, you look in the 13 principles of faith that the Rambam outlined. Well, the first three he actually offers proofs for, intellectual, rational proofs for the existence of God. For him, the mitzvah of Amunah demands you do that. For the Kuzri, your Amunah and belief in God can stop with today's shear. Pick one, though. All right. Cool. All right, guys. Take it easy. That was pretty cool. That was pretty cool.